Now, there's a lot of reasons why I took a break from business and innovation strategy and to, to dive into exploring the world of tech's impact on humanity and then seeing the devastation and, and let's just say the unrecognized effects of a lot of this stuff and trying to do something about it. And by quote unquote something, I mean by trying to give individuals the ability to take control of their own destinies and also of technology in order to achieve those destinies. And that I had seen firsthand with myself that I was completely failing, even though it gave the complete semblance of success. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Your unhappiness might have a price tag, and the free social media you use could be the ones ringing the cash register. That's one of the modern cultural phenomena writer, speaker, and digital anthropologist Brian Solis recognized while writing his latest book, Life Scale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. In this episode of Hack the Process, Brian will tell us what motivated him to overcome his fear of public speaking, why he has managed to all his own social media for most of his career, and how he realized that some of the technologies he has spent a lifetime working with might be at the root of his own discontent. Today I'm speaking with Brian Solis, and he is a digital anthropologist, speaker, and a best-selling author with a new book out called Life Scale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. Brian, how are you doing today? Well, I am doing well. Thank you very much. How are you doing today? So far, so good. It's exciting to get a chance to sit down and talk with you. You've had so many books out there. I've seen you speak online a number of occasions, and I'm really excited to hear more about this new book, which I think is going to address some of the process issues that a lot of us have when trying to deal with our complex and chaotic digital lifestyles. (laughs) I've got to tell you, I I could speak from firsthand knowledge. Yeah, and you do. And you speak very well from first-hand knowledge. In fact, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you are an accomplished speaker. And that is a skill that not everybody is able to manage in their lives. And I'm really curious if that was where you planned to go when you got started. It's funny that you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) I am terrified, or was terrified, of the idea of public speaking, and never really set out to do it. I mean, aside from in in elementary school and, and high school practicing debate clubs, just for the sake of pushing myself out of the comfort zone, I kind of let go of that and didn't see myself actively pursuing a speaking career. Uh, at the same time, I didn't see myself pursuing <laughs> career in writing books either. But they just sort of, they both sort of happened from the same means, which was around 2004, I really started to actively blog. You know, there was a rise of Web 2.0. And I had spent the last, I don't know, good six, seven years really trying to pioneer new techniques online for reaching people and for bringing people together and used the very platforms I was experimenting with as ways of sharing how I was experimenting with those platforms and deliberately trying to build a community around ideation and innovation and you know just celebrating what was possible and and sharing what we were doing and that led to speaking and 
also books, and I will be completely honest with you, the first the first couple of presentations I gave, while they were rooted in, in experience and knowledge, I, I would have to say that they were probably horrible in their delivery and their <laughs> presentation. Well, you have to wonder what it, what it was that was so compelling about this that made you overcome that particular fear of yours and made you feel like this is absolutely something that you have to learn how to do. Well, I saw how effective it could be uh, in sort of bringing to life. Not everything can be digital, uh, even though even though we're trying our hardest. <laughs> <laughs> we keep redefining what everything can be beyond one step beyond whatever digital is right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think what I had realized was that the power of community beyond just being online was it was incredible when you got to see the people you were collaborating with online in the real world. And it just sort of solidified the relationship. It took it to another level that I hadn't, I hadn't really seen or experienced because a, a lot of what I had been doing was really behind the screen for a good portion of at least a decade up until that point. So what were you doing before that point, actually? <laughs> a lot, literally experimenting with a lot, of, a, a lot of digital. So one of the things that a lot of folks don't know about me is that I, I ran a, a digital lab going back to 97. And... That lab was meant to understand how, for example, discussion boards and forums and early dot-com sites were influencing connected consumers differently than traditional media and reverse engineering that in as a means to, to create dialogue between whomever was sharing the information and whomever was consuming the information. So basically like the early early stages of social media, if you will. And then finding ways to, whether you were a journalist or a publication, or whether you were a brand, or whether you were a startup, of creating communities around these new and exciting innovative products or ideas, which essentially became the foundation of what would later be known as digital marketing, social media marketing eventually, and then also mobile marketing. And that, that is also what led me to understand the power of influence and ultimately what set me on a path to become a digital anthropologist. And, and that sounds like an absolutely fascinating thing to research right at that time when it was just starting to bubble up to the surface. Was that something that you were able actu actually to make a living at back then? <laughs> Such a good question. Uh, yeah, I will say that it was a very humble living. So living in Silicon, Silicon Valley with ideas that were pushing a lot of things forward Let's just say that my friends who all worked at enterprise companies doing traditional media and traditional marketing were making multiples of X over what I was what I was paying myself. But I also had built a, a very early pioneering lab that hired some really incredible people of which I was paying probably more than I was paying myself. And I got to work with all of the cool startups that ended up becoming, uh, you know, everybody, I, I guess the easy answer is everybody made more money than I did. But ultimately, though, the experience that I got, I think, sort of put me on a path of kind of controlling my own destiny. And then speaking in books and, and what have you sort of became an extension of those things. And then ultimately, I just stopped. I was fortunate enough to not have to worry about where the next paycheck was coming. It's nice to get to that point. And I, I can see why you'd be drawn to something like that back then. Was this your first venture into the into the work world and into the entrepreneurial world, or was there an evolution that led you to that? I had started a, a newspaper slash magazine in 1991, so at, at that time I was uh, just just entering the professional market as a full time 
uh, professional with with this uh, aspiration of becoming a programmer. <laughs> I, I learned a lot with that venture. It did really well. Actually, drew a lot of media attention in of itself. Built a pretty strong community. But this was sort of pre the opportunity to get this stuff online. So pre you know internet. 1.0, if you will. So the reason, I mean, it was literally a print publication that, that it did teach me a lot. And then I would, I would, I would go on to start my first company, my first real company uh, in 1999. And that, and that was the lab. That was right before or right around the time of the first big dot-com crash. Yeah, right. Yeah, talk about timing. It didn't really affect me until a good, a good two years into, into the run. In those two years, the lab blew up. I think we went from zero, well, one being me and working out of a garage, just like the uh, the typical Silicon Valley startup, uh, or at least back then. Uh, no one works out of garages anymore, I don't think. But we went to something like 30 people in months. It was, it was, it was a, it was a rocket ship. And we did pretty well through that, through that bus too, because we had a really unique approach to things and, and all it, startup funding didn't stop and tech companies didn't stop needing to reach audiences. So we were, we were in pretty good place. So what did the business look like around that time? Well, it was really, really about pioneering all of this digital stuff. I, it's, it's interesting because we had, we had a division of our organization that would employ traditional means. So working with publications and television stations and radio stations to help startups and tech companies kind of reach broader audiences. But really the, the digital stuff was, was market creation. What, I guess basically back then it was sort of pre-growth hacking. It was really about reaching, reaching you know, in tech, we talk about the bell curve, you know, where the far left side are early adopters, you know, the fringe. And our, our efforts were really around reaching the fringe and uniting them to move them from left to right of the bell curve to reach that early market majority. Interesting. And so what was your pitch back then? <laughs> I don't, yeah, okay. <laughs> the older I get, the, the, the more I forget. Uh, I don't necessarily remember. I think a lot of times it was listening to the needs of whatever the company was. It was always that. What, you know, what are you trying to do? What's the technology? And really trying to figure out ways to make that company or that product attractive or to redesign what that company or that product was to make it more attractive to the fringe and then helping it move along the bell curve. So I think the pitch was whatever we needed it to be to help that company reach their growth goals. It's interesting. So you were kind of on the cusp of marketing and design and publicity. Yeah, all of those things and media, right? So a lot of times we were creating the platforms to to reach the right people. And it was it's one of the reasons why we called it a lab because it wasn't wasn't like there was a traditional product set that you were you were selling against everybody else. The the harder part is that we were pioneering our own market of which to sell this stuff. You know, we used our own I guess we ate our own dog food so to speak and we attracted the you know, the folks who, if you're going to have a tech company, if you're going to have a startup, you are probably on the left side of the bell curve. We were really inventing for them, and they were certainly looking for alternate solutions to the traditional options that were out there because those traditional options weren't designed to make markets. They were just designed to sort of promote or publicize. Interesting. And so it feels to me like at some point you came to the realization that you needed to turn some of these skills toward yourself as a brand and putting yourself out there. Yeah, unintentionally, you know, just to be completely honest, it was, I, I, I liked, I liked being the person behind the person. I, I think when I was young, there's a, a real famous movie called The Idol Maker. Uh, and, and I saw myself as that individual behind the scenes and really didn't want to be on stage in front of a camera, you know, even though I was, before there was blogging, I was writing 
and creating content, but in my voice, not behind a, an image or a video or, or behind a voice, literally a voice. When Web 2.0 really started to formalize and when we kind of outgrew the, the geeky area, era of discussion boards and forums and really started to get these platforms that were slick and beautiful and, and far easier to use and, and attracting more and more mainstream users and consumers, you know, I had a really, a really stellar reputation at that point and it just sort of, it outgrew my design or my desire to kind of keep it under the lid. <laughs> uh, and, and decided to just kind of roll with it and step outside of my comfort zone along the way. And I'm still sort of writing it. You're writing it very well. And that sounds like that was around the time that you started doing public speaking. Yeah, I started doing public speaking just shortly. I mean, the blogging, the minute I started blogging that, it was just on fire. I, it was just on fire. I think the first year I started blogging was the first year I started speaking because the requests would just come in. You know, and you have to remember, too, at that time, it wasn't anything like it is today where every single person who has a mobile device essentially has a platform for creating content and they do create content. So it was less noisy. And so I didn't have to cut through a lot of, a lot of clutter or a lot of information in order to reach people. People were actively looking for direction and insight because it was the wild west. I was waking up at ridiculous hours in the morning to just publish, 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 and then do my day job. And that's a lot to keep track of, of course. But you also were working, the type of work you were doing during your J-job involved meeting a lot of the people who might be able to help share your message as well. It was incredible. I say that if it was really one of those right time, right places kind of thing. So I moved to Silicon Valley in 1996 from Los Angeles. And I just realized that I wasn't going to have a profession in the tech industry in LA at the time. So just kind of packed up my bags and left my my parents and my sister behind and went to Silicon Valley. And, you know, right right then it was truly Silicon Valley. I mean, you had Sun Microsystems, you had HP, you had Fujitsu, you had all of these really big traditional players populating what essentially, if you know, Silicon Valley back then looked like a, a desolate 70s strip mall paradise. It was just so ironic. An iconic destination for tech would look so dated and and, and sort of, I guess, humble is probably a good word. That's true. No, I, re I remember Silicon Valley in the late 90s myself. And it was yeah. kind of like, you know, living in an off-ramp sometimes. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's exactly, I mean, of course, it's still, there's still some of that, but everything else now is very extravagant and big and campuses are everywhere. And But then... It was so exciting, and we would go out. I would, I, I would start these things like the tech set. I had a blog called Bubblicious that was documenting the rise of Web 2.0 from, from more of a sort of a the meet the people behind these companies kind of thing. And, and I, I learned how to take really what I, what I was trying to capture was these iconic photographs of these people because I felt like what they were working on was so great. So even though I was creating and designing the future for digital and engagement and influence, I was also documenting their stories as well. And it created this, this community of entrepreneurs before a lot of the big tech blogs came out. Uh, in fact, I, I have a whole, a whole series of iconic photographs with, you know, a then young Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, well, who's still young, but uh, you <laughs> name it, you know, chances are I, I have pictures of them in their early days. And those pictures still today are, are used in media and in Wikipedia and all kinds of things. But I guess the long story short on that front was that it did come at, you know, just to be honest, it did come at the cost of, you know, my family because I was constantly out. There were sometimes six, eight different tech events in an evening uh, and Silicon Valley ex extended all the way to San Francisco and I lived in, in Silicon Valley proper. So I was it's just constantly gone. It's just so exciting and thrilling. And you're building all of these things. You're meeting people. You're collaborating on all these startups. I had, 
I had a few startups on the side as well. One of them got, that got acquired by a company called Meltwater. And it was like nothing I had ever seen before. And so that sort of, it was like that rising tide floats all boats. And that, I don't know that I've seen it repeat itself that in, in that concentrated of a fashion. No, I think that was a very special time. And I, I can just imagine how difficult it must have been trying to keep a family together while you were trying to build all of that. Yes, barely. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I don't think I knew that you were a photographer. A lot of people didn't because it wasn't anything that I, I promoted, but it was sort of the in-the-know thing. So if if you go to flickr.com slash Brian Solis, a proper old-school Web 2.0 photo share insight, if you go back you know, all the way many, many years, you'll see some, some incredible pictures of some incredible people. I even had a, I even had some tech geeks fly me out to Hollywood to do secret photography of like these special celebrity dinners or galas or, you know, where they didn't want to, where they didn't trust any other photographers. But since I was a geek and they loved the pictures that I would, I would get, I get brought in there. But then I, I, I had to eventually hang up the lens, right? Because the more you start to create content and become known for that content, those ideas, the books, the speaking, then the more and more that machine becomes, well, the more that machine, let's just say. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that you've kind of built up a little industry of people around you who help to support and build and grow that industry. You know, you'd be surprised. Most of the time, it was just me. Really? Yeah. In fact, until this last book, the latest book, which just came out a few weeks ago, it, it had been me all the way along. So my voice, my words, my actually hitting publish on everything, including all of the social accounts, including all the content creation, including all the presentations and the books, you know, the design, all of that stuff. And then I, uh, none of that is scalable. But, you know, at the time, my market was really niched and nuanced. So I, I didn't have to try to be like some of the bigger names out there. But now all of that's changing. Things are noisy. My ideas, I think, are getting bigger. My opportunity to focus is definitely there because I am I am trying to be much more mindful and present with my family. And so to be intentional about this and growing this in a very specific and scalable way, I have now literally in the last six weeks started building out a team around me. And is that something that came out of some of the concepts that you're discussing in your latest book, LifeScale? Well, yeah, actually, the book itself was inspired by many things, one of which was that I was completely losing my ability to focus. The technology that I helped launch, the technology that I had studied over the last you know, 20 years, you know, I, I eventually succumbed to it. But at the same time, I also had desires of being a better father, a better husband, a better friend, and seeing firsthand just the effects of digital on productivity, happiness, creativity, and then also relationships. There's a lot of reasons why I took a break from business and innovation strategy and to to dive into exploring the world of tech's impact on humanity and then seeing the devastation and, and let's just say the unrecognized effects of a lot of this stuff and trying to do something about it. And by quote unquote something, I mean by trying to give individuals the ability to take control of their own destinies and also of technology in order to achieve those destinies. And that I had seen firsthand with myself that I was completely failing, even though it gave the complete semblance of success. That's fascinating. It sounds to me like you might have written this book primarily for yourself. I am not going to lie. I <laughs> absolutely wrote it for myself. I, <laughs> and the answer is because I couldn't find the answer. I knew I had a problem, and I did what most people would probably do, which is Google solutions to that problem. But what I what I found were things like anything from you name it, 
uh, meditation, turning off notifications, deleting apps, turning things off, unplugging, completely abandoning things, going outside, you, what you know, all kinds of you know, downloading. Well, depending on at the time, I think Calm and Headspace were top recommendations. And, and to the extent of exercise and yoga and what have you. And all of those things were sort of treating the symptoms. But what I didn't understand was what the problem actually was or what the problems were. And so I, I dedicated a year of research to understanding those problems or what was behind those problems. And then once you start to unpack that, it's, it's unbelievable what you find. And you realize that now there's a sense of urgency to address all of these things or as many of those things can. What I didn't want to do is create a book that was anti-tech or, you know, tell everybody, hey, unplug and be part of the superficial solution. I wanted to help people understand what was going on and then also what to do about it. So it sounds like it's a it's a deeper question than the obvious answers about turning off everything and stepping away. It feels like that might be part of the answer, but it doesn't feel like you're, you're saying that that is adequate to address what's really going on. Yeah. I, well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I had found was that a lot of the tech that we use today was designed to, I'll be nice and say persuasive. <laughs> the reason that it's designed to be persuasive is because many of the apps and services that we use today, so i.e. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, are free. And the commodity that they trade on is your attention or the currency. So the more of your attention they have, the more that they can sell or the greater that they can monetize it. And ultimately, as many of those companies went public, then they started to get shareholder pressure to continue to grow those revenue sources all, again, against your attention span. In fact, Netflix's Reed Hastings in a shareholder call last year said uh, when asked what his biggest competition was, he just quipped sleep. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so <laughs> the, uh, the more you spend time unpacking or researching persuasive design, for example, with the likes of Tristan Harris, they think he created the Center for Humane Design, which is preaching ethical design of a lot of these apps. Essentially, persuasive design, intermittent variable rewards, you have all of these different techniques that are essentially what is behind gambling or what's behind gaming that are meant to suck you in and ultimately a lot of those the, the the net result of that design it unlocks chemicals in your body it rewires your brain you know so a lot of these things that um, we could probably get into at another time uh, uh, end up becoming addictive and so they have the same effects of say drugs or alcohol or you know, opioids for example you, your body just becomes dependent on them and then also the emotions and the psychology of it your mind also become dependent on a lot of these feelings and this the whether it's seeking validation or whether it's it's keeping a, a higher click on your self-esteem so these things play out and the reason why i had to get this deep in my research was because when you're unhappy i, I was unhappy i just didn't know it I was, I had lower self-esteem. I just didn't really know it. There was just a lot of things that I was feeling and I had to get to, I had to connect with all of those things. So putting your phone down or turning off notifications, you know, obviously isn't going to deal with that directly. Uh, so the book LifeScale and the reason why I wrote it for myself was because nothing was really starting to connect the dots between all of the stuff that I was finding. The closest that I could get to it was something like a 12-step program, which if you think about it, in a 12-step program, you're connecting with peers who can guide you, who are not necessarily your day-to-day your -day friends. You're finding some type of spiritual 
let's just say guidance or something that whether it's a god or or whether it's just something you can believe in that gives you a, a sense of higher purpose, something bigger than you. So all of those things are part of the solution because it isn't it isn't just as easy as putting down the bottle or just cold turkey and whatever substance you're on. I just started to find a lot of parallels around that and decided to create a life-scaling journey that was going to not be a 12-step program, but also just reconnect you to a you that has to live and survive and, and hopefully even thrive in an era where these distractions are only going to get worse and worse and worse, and that these design techniques are now going to be driven by AI and machine learning. So they're also going to get more and more manipulative. And so I, I wanted to empower ourselves not to live on the standards of what our parents and their parents told them how to live life, like go to university, buy a house. This is what happiness looks like. This is what success looks like. I wanted to redefine what those things are for a modern society and a modern society Society that was going to continue to evolve. So essentially, LifeScale became a life manual for how to live life today. And I needed that book. It sounds like a huge challenge. I have one very quick question. Does it have a happy ending? <laughs> it does. It, it does. Uh, <laughs> in fact, the uh, when you open up the, the first couple of pages, you're introduced to, the, to a visualization of the LifeScale journey. See in the upper right-hand corner of the journey, it's bright and happy and hopefully cheery and campy because you're in control of, of your life scale and the visualization itself is meant to emulate like a candy land board or shoots and ladders and it's it's just meant to be friendly the whole journey is actually even though it gets deep along the way of course it's it's fun it's designed to be fun it's it's it, it emulates us an artist's sketchbook and it's it's just it's really creative as you turn the pages and and you learn as you go to how to build focus, how to how to read more than three minutes at a time, all of these things. And so, yes, it's 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 a deep exercise. It's a really hard topic at the beginning. The first few pages, I exposed what a lot of what a lot of the things that are happening to us. But it's I needed hope. I needed a positive experience. I needed optimism. Uh, and that was if I was going to read the book I was writing, <laughs> it had to be all those things. Well, I'm encouraged, and I'm, I'm, I think that listeners will be as well. Where can I direct them to find out more about your book? Well, I would love it if you would come on this journey with me. It is lifescaling.me. Uh, it's a, at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere where you like to buy books, maybe even your local bookstore. And also my, my personal site is briansolis.com. So hopefully it's easy to find for you. And if you do read it, please share share your experience with me because I'm trying to share those experiences with others because it's something that we need a community around. And my email is brian at briansolis.com. All right, everybody. Brian, the digital anthropologist, is doing his ethnographic research with you. So please share your experiences with him. And thank you, Brian, so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure meeting you. You know, it's been my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>